Well, I encourage you to open with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And before we read there, I'm going to go ahead and open in prayer. And then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have given us your word. Uh, tonight, I think we'll be looking at a passage that combines some concepts that can be difficult to understand. I pray for your grace and help in that. And I pray that you would help us to profit from your word. That it be an encouragement and challenge. Uh, highlighting your faithfulness and goodness regardless uh, of mankind and our foolishness and sinfulness. You are still faithful and good and help us to see that and be encouraged from what we read. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, people often ask questions like, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Or why do bad things happen to good people, right? If, if God is good and God is all-powerful, why are bad things allowed to happen in this world? Uh, in fact, that very line of questioning took place last Sunday night. I don't know if you, uh, I believe it was last Sunday night, uh, with the shooting at the, the church in Texas. I, I don't know if you watch uh, Fox News. Occasionally I watch that. Um, and last Sunday night we were watching that and they had on a pastor. Um, is, I think Pastor Jeffries from Texas, um, who annoyed me a little bit during the election process. He seemed a little too pro-Trump for me, but um, he uh, was on the show and I, I don't know if you saw that interview where the, the, the announcer basically asked him those kinds of very questions. How, how can you explain this in light of God? How can this be? And I thought he did an excellent job at answering that question. And he, and he said, God works through difficult, hard, sinful situations and brings good out of it. It may not seem that way in the short term, and that may not be the immediate result, but ultimately he is working for good purposes uh, to accomplish his purpose, and, and sometimes that may take days or weeks or a lifetime or even an eternity before we finally see the results of that. Um, I thought he answered that very well. And I think we have a passage today that reminds us of that same kind of principle. We're going to see here in chapter 12 of 1 Kings that man's sinfulness is a part of God's plan. And his sovereign plan incorporates sinfulness in achieving his good purposes. That is a difficult thing for us to understand. And this passage isn't going to fully explain that to us. But we'll see those principles in operation. We'll see the sinfulness of mankind. And yet God's sovereign purposes uh, working out here in the nation of Israel. So let's look in chapter 12, verses 1 through 5 to get started it says there, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, 
He was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. So what I want you to see here, first of all, is the foolishness of the young king. Now, I'm going to have to apologize. What happened is the fonts are a little messed up here. Um, every Sunday night that I've been doing this, I've been using my own computer, so I have a font on there. So the scaling's a little messed up. So hopefully it won't cause us too much distraction, but uh, that's, that's why it's uh, a little distorted, maybe on some of the slides. So I'll just have to get the font uh, installed on there next week. But... Um, we see here, first of all, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I wanted to back up and do a quick overview because this chapter is actually a key transition in this book. So we covered the first 11 chapters, which have to do with the United Kingdom. Uh, so that's uh, chapters 1 through 11. And then we see the beginning of chapter 12. We see the divided kingdom, in, uh, starting with uh, chapter 12 here. And we're specifically going to talk about the split uh, today and uh, more of that in coming weeks. Uh, but we'll also look at how the uh, prophets take a prominent role in the book of Kings. Um, and we'll see the path to exile there, ultimately the fall of the kingdom there we see at the end of the book, Lord willing, if we get there. Um, so we are starting a new section which has to do with the divided kingdom. And the first point I want you to see in that is the foolishness of the young king. The foolishness of the young king. So this will actually go the first 15 verses of this chapter. And then we'll uh, look at uh, the next section starting with 16. But in verse 5, we see the request for relaxation. So this seems like a common theme of humanity, doesn't it? Taxes are too high, right? They're complaining to King Rehoboam. Uh, the taxes, the burden your father put on us. So Solomon, his father was the king before him. He's now getting ready to take over. Solomon has died. That's what we saw there at the end of chapter 11. And we see Rehoboam taking over. The nation has gathered, we saw in verse 1, uh, they've gathered to uh, make Rehoboam king. That's the purpose. It's his coronation day, you could say. Um, and they've come together for that purpose. However... Um, there's a little bit of uh, rebellion going on. We see a desire for Jeroboam to come back. See, Jeroboam, it tells us, had been down in Egypt because Solomon wanted to try and kill him. Solomon uh, realized he was uh, either realized he was going to take over the kingdom uh, or in fulfillment of the prophecy that God uh, had given, or he was just causing trouble because he knew that. But whatever the case, Solomon was after him, so he ran down to Egypt to escape, it says. Um, it's kind of funny. Solomon's first, uh, the, the wife we read about prominently is, is from Egypt, right? And yet uh, it's the Egyptians that are uh, helping his enemies. So uh, funny how those political alliances work. But um, Jeroboam's been down in Egypt. He's coming back. And uh, there's a desire of the, the nation of Israel for Jeroboam to come back, which is an indication, I think, that there is a subtle rebellion already brewing here. Um, it says that uh, 
verse 3, that they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying. So, they desire for Jeroboam to come back. He's a leader in Israel. We, we do know that he was over the forced labor, it tells us in previous chapters. Um, and he's, he knows, at least, that he's supposed to get some of the uh, tribes of Israel that will come and uh, align with him. So, we see that happen, and we see the demand laid on the king here. They, they, all the people come together, and it says that they say in verse 4, Your father made our yoke hard, now therefore lighten the hard service of your father. So, this is kind of a tough situation. Jeroboam is getting ready to be the king of the nation, and they're demanding he lighten up on them. If you think about what Solomon did... We can imagine that they did have a heavy burden, right? What did they do in his lifetime? It talks about all the workers that he had, this huge labor force, and it talked about how he'd have them go and work for a month and then go back to their family for two months and then go back to work. So one out of every three months, he had this large group of people that was working to do this stuff. And um, he had the temple building project. He had the building project for his palace complex. And we know from the end in chapter 11 that he built a whole bunch of other buildings as well, some of which were uh, places for false worship. So it's reasonable, it seems, that they would be concerned about the heaviness of the work that's been upon them. So this is his challenge uh, that they make of him. And then we see him basically delay the people. So in verse 5, he says to them, Depart for three days, then return to me. So the people departed. So we have uh, uh, King Rehoboam here uh, taking over, and the people right away demanding that he lighten up on them. So what's a young king to do? Well, the young king does some research here. So you see, secondly, he does some research. What's his research? Let's read 6 through 11. It says, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served with his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, What counsel do you give me that we may answer this people have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? The young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So, Rehoboam does his research. So, uh, he does the wise thing at first, it would seem. He consults with the elders. He consults with the elders. So it tells us in verse 6 through 8 here, he consults with the elders. These are the ones who had served with his father. And 
they are the ones that, as Queen of Sheba had spoken, said uh, they were hearing the wisdom of, Sol of Solomon on a daily basis. So it would seem their age is a quality that has given them some experience and some wisdom, some insights into how things work and what the situation is. So these would be men that would seem to have qualities of wisdom and be good. They also have uh, lots of experience uh, seemingly therefore working with Solomon. Solomon was king for 40 years. So there was a long term reign and, and probably many of them had a lot of time with Solomon. So uh, these are the aged men and their counsel then in response to Rehoboam is what should you do? Listen to the people. Listen to the people. And, and we have the benefit of knowing the end of the story, actually, but there is clearly a great unity among the people on this issue. They are very much determined that they would like things to be lightened because it's been heavy. So the men give him what I believe is good counsel, wise counsel, that, they sh that he should take that seriously. But he, he doesn't do that. Now, I think a lot of times when people look at this passage, and perhaps we've heard messages like this, or we read it and think this ourselves. We think, you know, he, he, he was influenced by his friends instead of the elderly people that he should have listened to, and that was the root of the problem. But what's interesting is when you read it carefully, notice how the order of events goes. He meets with the older men first, and then look at verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men. So the implication seems to be he didn't like what they said. It wasn't just that his friends prevailed upon him and he gave in to their pressure. He just didn't like their advice. He didn't want to do that. Because, hey, he's the new king and he wants to be king, right? He doesn't want anyone telling him what to do. So he forsakes that wisdom that the elders give him and he goes and talks with his peers. And what do they say? Their answer is, um, your little finger will uh, be heavier or fatter than your father's thighs or something like that. Um, and we're going we're gonna to add to your yoke and your whips will become, uh, or my father disciplined you with whips, it says in verse 11, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Not sure if that's literally the animal, a scorpion, or the idea that uh, I read in one commentary was that it's actually a whip with multiple tails on it, with, uh, which was even more harsh than a single whip. Um, but clearly the point is he's being harsh, and, and, and this advice is harsh uh, in consulting with these young men, and is really foolish advice. So what, is, what does Rehoboam do? So Rehoboam, after consulting with his young men, goes and responds to the people. So look at verse 12 again. Or, or I'm sorry, 12 to 14. Let's go ahead and read that there. It says, Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. The king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So what's the, what's the answer? Well, we see the assembly comes back together, verse 12. 
and we see the answer here of Rehoboam. Oh, first of all, look at the attitude. Verse 13. The attitude in verse 13. It says, the king answered the people harshly. That's always great wisdom with a new leader, isn't it? The, the first thing you do, first major decision you have to make, and you are hard in your answer to them. But that's what he's doing. He's being harsh in his answer. That's his attitude. We also see his answer is, I'm going to be worse than my dad. You thought my dad was bad, I'm going to be worse. So I'm going to really make your life miserable because I'm the king and I can do that, right? That's, that's kind of the attitude he's got here and he's promoting. This really is foolishness. What I want you to see here, and here's the tension point of what we started off with, is why does this happen? What, 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 why do, do these things come about? Is it Rehoboam's fault for all of this, or was this God's plan? Exactly. The answer is yes. <laughs> right? It is the working together of the human will and responsibility that we have as human beings and the sovereign plan of God. They are working together. They are compatible. They are not incompatible. They, they work together, though we admit it's something we don't fully understand. So we see, humanly speaking, Rehoboam was foolish. This was a foolish way to handle the problems. It was foolish. He should have uh, answered in a better way. Um, and uh, although it's theoretical, it's hard to say what would have. Obviously, this was God's plan, right? But on one sense, it was foolish, humanly speaking. But we also know this was part of the divine purpose. Look at verse 15. It says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So we have here an outcome uh, of the kingdom is going to be divided. And who's at fault? Well, as we said, there is human mistakes or uh, foolish choices here. And we're going to see a sinful rebellion take place by the northern kingdom here in just a minute. But this was part of God's purpose. God sovereignly planned this. And this is an amazing thing about our God. He works together all things for good. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is good. But he works everything together as part of his master plan for good. Like the shooting last week, we don't know what that good is. But he has good purposes that aren't fully resolved yet. Let's take a simpler example that's very clear to us from the scriptures. Were the men involved in crucifying Christ guilty of sin? Yes. He was innocent. He was lied about. They falsely accused him. Were they guilty? Was Judas guilty of betraying him? Yes. But how does Peter speak of what happened in, in the book of Acts? Peter says this was according to God's predetermined counsel and will. Peter makes it very clear. This was God's sovereign purpose 
He worked out his will, like we talked about this morning. It wasn't just that God said, oh, wow, that's how things are going to work out. No, this was his plan. He worked these things out, and yet it involved sinful choices of human beings. It's hard to reconcile. But we must be careful, as Paul warns. Does this mean then we should sin so that grace abounds? And Paul says, absolutely not. We shouldn't sin so that grace would abound, but where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. It's a difficult thing to comprehend, but we see here God has a sovereign purpose even though uh, people are acting foolishly and sinfully. And we see the same thing in our lives and in our society as well. So what should we do? When those kinds of things happen... We respond by faith. We trust God. We don't have all of the reasons why these things are happening. And that's one of the difficulties. We've we've talked before, and you've experienced before, the concept of dealing with a lost loved one. That's difficult, but God has purposes in that that are often hard to understand, but yet there are good purposes. We need to trust God. And when we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, we're not clear what to do or, or, or what's going on, we simply need to trust. As, as we heard in Sunday school, he talked about how we obsess over things we don't understand. We're trying to work out situations. Sometimes we simply have to trust. And this is an example of how God's sovereign purposes are working together with the free will of man in a way we don't understand. But it's compatible, not contrary. We just have to trust God's uh, good purposes. So let's see also, it's not just a foolish young king that's a problem. It's actually a large group of people that are in rebellion. So let's look at 16 to 20. uh, 16 to 20. And we'll talk here about the rebellion of the people of the north, how they respond to this. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. I'm going to pause there. I think uh, a few things to note. Number one, the, the people are rejecting Rehoboam for not listening, right? They're rejecting Rehoboam because he's not listening to their their plea that uh, the taxes, the workload, is too heavy for us, um, lighten the load. He's not listening, so they're rejecting Rehoboam. But did you notice who else they rejected? Who else do they reject? What's that? I would say God, but there's somebody also specifically mentioned in the text. David. And the problem with rejecting David is David is the one through whom God's going to fulfill everything that he's saying is going to happen in Israel. That's coming through David. So ultimately, it is a rejection of God as well. But what they're doing here is purely rebellion. It was God's plan for this to happen. But sinful people are acting sinfully. Uh, 
and we need to recognize that, that because, although God is sovereign, it doesn't let us off the hook for sin, right? These people are doing wrong. They're rebelling against the king that God has established for Israel. They're, they're turning from him. They're rejecting him. That was a sinful response on their part. And they're essentially saying, we don't have any part in David, which ultimately there's a lot of promises coming through David, including the Messiah. So they're rejecting those things. Um, but we need to understand God's sovereignty doesn't excuse our sin. One of the examples I think of from the Old Testament is Samson. Do you remember Samson? Did uh, Pastor Elwert cover uh, the book of Judges? I'm No? Yes. All right. So apparently you guys weren't members yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just out of town that, that, that month, that six weeks. Right. Um, in the book of Judges, though, it talks about Samson. I, I believe it's chapters uh, 13 to 16 or something like that. But in there, one of the things it talks about with Samson is he marries a Philistine, which was something the Israelites were not supposed to do. It says in the text, though, that his parents didn't understand the Lord was seeking an occasion against the Philistines, right? I believe that's another example of the complex working of God's sovereignty and the sinfulness of mankind. Do I think Samson was supposed to marry a Philistine? I think he was supposed to marry an Israelite, as the other Israelites were. But I, I've literally had arguments with uh, another believer that God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines, so why are we giving Samson a hard time? Well, that was disobedience. God sovereignly worked through that to accomplish his, his purposes, but it doesn't excuse the disobedience. So here it is with the nation of, uh, of the north. They have rebelled against the king. They're in rebellion. We also see that they are rejecting Rehoboam, also uh, David, and ultimately therefore God, which is going to play out in the coming chapters to see how the north especially turns to idolatry very quickly. But we also see they depart. Verse 16 tells us they, they say go to their tents. So they're leaving. They're rejecting the king. They depart. And then we see the exception, though, of Judah. It says, verse 17, But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Now what's fascinating to me about this is, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, if all these tribes are rebelling against the king because the load is too heavy, why would one just not? Why, why would one just say, hey, this is cool, we, we're, we're good with it? I, humanly speaking, I don't think that's what would be natural or normal to expect to happen. It's part of God's sovereign plan. That's why ultimately it happened. So God is preserving one tribe for Rehoboam, therefore for David, as God said he would do. So it's the faithfulness of God in preserving a tribe for David. Ultimately, his purposes were going to be fulfilled through the tribe of Judah. So they stay loyal. We, we see, though, that Rehoboam tries to recover. 
who tries to recover here. Um, verse 18. Let's look at verse 18. It says, Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee Jerusalem. So we see here that Rehoboam tries to re recover here uh, the workforce, even though they rebelled, and they're not having it. They killed the man he sends, and he barely escapes with his own life. And we see verse 19, a very sad, very sad verse. Verse 19 says, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. What is to this day? That is when the author of the book of First and Second Kings is writing. And as we've already said, that was the captivity time frame. So about 350 years after this event, they're still in rebellion. Um, it's a permanent rebellion. Um, we see in uh, next that we also have a replacement king. Look at verse 20. It says, And it came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So, we have a replacement king. So this really is solidifying their rebellion. They're establishing Jeroboam as their new king in place of Rehoboam. So, we have the rebellion of the people. But notice, secondly, in this section we see... Okay, here's the... Uh, I forgot. We got a picture of the division of the land. So we basically have Judah, Judah in the south there and the kingdoms of Israel in the north. Even though it's 10 to 1, um, the area difference in land mass isn't that great, actually. So um, that's a basic view of what the division looked like. All right, so we... We see, secondly, in this section, that the Lord restrains the situation. Look with me at verses 21 to 24. It says, Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of your people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way uh, to the according to the word of the Lord. So we see here that uh, Rehoboam, his initial response, okay, they rejected, I'm, I'm going to be harsher speech, uh, and they're, they're leaving. Uh, they've rejected the man that he has set, uh, Adoram, here to be over the forced labor, and they've killed him. So his, in his, all of his youthful wisdom, he decides he's going to amass a very, very large army. So it tells us that he gets 180,000 chosen men uh, because he's going to fight them. Since reasoning hasn't worked, he's going to use muscle, right? So he's got 180,000, and then the word of the prophet intervenes here. So, uh, which is, I'm sorry, the prophet intervenes bringing the message of the Lord. 
So the Lord intervenes here using the prophet. So we see the prophet's message here saying, speak to, it says, verse 23, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all the house of the people. So the message is for Rehoboam and the people, and the message is they're not to have this fight. God points out again that this is his doing. This is his plan. He has orchestrated these events so that his purposes will be fulfilled. And again, amazingly, the people listened. It says in verse 24, they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. Again, humanly speaking, people are angry. Emotions are hot. There is frustration. There's tension. And yet... The word of the Lord prevails and the people respond and don't go after. Because ultimately, God is sovereignly working his purpose out in the nation of Israel, even though mankind has responded sinfully. So we see here a challenge and uh, a short look at, uh, we're we're not going to look at uh, verses 25 to 33 tonight, because I believe that's going to take us down a different track where we're going to focus on Jeroboam and his rebellion and how he specifically tries to maintain his leadership over his newfound kingdom. But we see here in in this passage that uh, it's a clear indication, as we see in verse 24 especially, and verse 15, a reminder of God's purpose in this. Look at verse 15 again. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And then again in verse 24, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So we see here the balance of the sovereignty of God and the sinfulness of mankind. How exactly God works all those things out is hard to understand but we do understand from the scriptures that mankind is responsible for their behavior we are not to excuse sinful choices because God is sovereign and this was his plan no there was foolishness there was sinfulness there was rebellion and those things have consequences But yet, it's part of God's sovereign plan. And that also should help us as we live in this sinful world. There's a lot of crazy, sinful, hard-to-understand things that happen in this world. What What are we to do? We're to trust that God has a purpose and continue to trust Him and be obedient to Him. The craziness of the world around us is not an excuse for us to be crazy and do foolish and sinful things. We need to respond with trust and obedience, trusting that ultimately and looking forward to the day when Christ is going to return and he is going to do as he talks about uh, in the Gospels uh, and the Lord's Prayer, in fact, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're looking forward to because right now, uh, we have a bunch of sinful people doing 
uh, many crazy and sinful things, and we ourselves too. I don't want to make it sound like it's just everyone else except us. We do sinful things too, and yet God works in a way through that. It's not an excuse. We're totally responsible. But yet God has good purposes, and we can rejoice in that. So ultimately, again, we are driven to trust in our God and rejoice in who he is and how he works out things that we can't understand. And I think it can be an opportunity to share the gospel with those around us as well. When these crazy things like this happen, I, uh, we were talking about how wonderful it was that this pastor had an opportunity to speak about this. And in the course of that interview, if you had seen it, he did actually share uh, at least significant portions of the gospel. So he was explaining that um, uh, this was a wrong, but he also said they did wrong to Christ, and they crucified him, and that wasn't right. And he used that as the supreme example of sinful people and sinful choices, and yet God sovereignly working through that. So it can be an opportunity for us to share the gospel as well. So we should take those opportunities. And we should trust God when it doesn't make sense, because sometimes it won't. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can trust you. We, we don't understand how or why everything happens in the world. And we understand some basic principles from your word. But when we experience things personally, it can be very hard to filter through those things. Help us, Father, to trust you when things don't make sense. Help us, though, not to use your forgiveness, your grace, uh, your sovereignty, working all things together for good as excuses for our wrongdoing. Help us to take responsibility for that, confess those things, make it right with other people where we need to do that. And, Father, help us, though, to trust you and look forward to the day when you are ultimately going to remove all sin from the world and we can rejoice eternally with you without any sin. We look forward to that. Continue to remind us of that coming day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.